0: Today we are starting uh, a series that God has been working on in my life for the last 17 years. Um, For the last five years, I've been thinking and having language about it, and for the last two years, I've noticed the need for this type of teaching in our congregation, and over the last year, it's become stronger and stronger and stronger, and so this summer when I was away, I I was considering a couple of different things to teach on this fall, and um, the Lord kept bringing me back to um, this idea that, that we are not machines. we are human beings created in His image. And a lot of us struggle with this rhythm, this rhythm of working and resting. And so um, today we kick off um, 11 weeks of, of teaching on um, what does it mean to work and what does it mean to rest? What does it truly mean the Sabbath? Um, So whether you're retired and you're like kind of out of the, quote, working, the uh, the paid work of your life, or whether you're a college student entering in considering what you want to give your life to, um, or or you're in between, maybe you're in your dream job, but you're just exhausted and the pace in which you're living is catching up to you, Um, I do not know a person who does not need to hear um, the gospel of the kingdom of God applied to our work and our rest um, it's going to be amazing. We have these devotional guides for you. You should be sitting on one. We've worked really hard working on these. This And each uh, day there is a scripture reading and some prayers and questions um, and some opportunities for you to, to dive deeper. They they will follow along with the big themes of this of each uh, kind of message for Sunday. Today is kind of an introductory kind of why we're doing this and the cost of of not understanding work and rest. And then we will spend five, work, five weeks on work and five weeks on Sabbath. And uh, you might think that's, not an, that, that's too much. just not enough. But we're going to cram. Just, we're just, gonna just It's going to be a fire hose for, for 10 more weeks. So I encourage you, grab uh, um, copies of this. We printed 100. There's more than enough. We'll print more. We'll have it up on our website. You can download digitally. And finally, um, I want to encourage you to grab somebody and to um, do this with. Um, I If I don't have a plan with the scriptures, I don't read them. And so um, I, we produce these because I need these. I, I need uh, some sort of a framework to go by. So I want to encourage you to, to pick up one of these and grab a buddy. it be fun. Recently, a really good friend of mine texted me and he said, uh, are you home? And I wasn't. I was, at, I was running an errand. I had Hayden with me. Shari was out of town with Grayson and so I was um, kind of uh, juggling work with with daddy dude time and I had to go run an errand. And so my friend said, are you home? And I said, no. He said, when will you be home? And I texted back, probably three o'clock. And he said, "Uh, okay, I need to come talk to you. And for the rest of the day, I was filled with anxiety because I thought, what did I do? (laughs) Like, did I offend this guy? Did I offend his wife? Do they want to not be friends? They'd be like, I don't know. Like, he's never just like, stopped by. He's never just asked. Like, we're really good friends, but he's never just out of the blue said, I need to come talk to you. And I was worried for the rest of the day, what's going on? Me and Hayden got home around 2.45, and I got him set with some monster trucks, and, um, and at 3.01, there's a knock at my door. My friend's never on time to anything. He's always like 20 minutes late to whatever, so I'm thinking, okay. It's a serious, as soon as I opened the door, I could tell something's wrong with my friend. He comes inside. My son's in the living room playing, and, and I, I said, Hey, um, why don't we talk? We could either talk down here in the dining room, and I could keep an eye on my son, or if you want a private place, we can go upstairs to my study. And uh, when we built our house, we built my study um, attached to our master bedroom for some weird reason. Apparently, it's socially awkward, and no one ever wants to go upstairs to the pastor's study that's attached to his master bedroom, and it's just weird. And, and so I, I assumed this guy would say, let's stay downstairs, and this grown man said, let's go upstairs. And so we're barreling upstairs to my private awkward study attached to my master bedroom, and all I'm thinking is, well, at least if he beats me up, my son won't see me cave you know. So we go into my, I was like, hey, didn't play with my stress. Do not come upstairs. We go upstairs. We sit down in my office, and immediately he sits down, wasting no time, and he says, Drew, I'm having suicidal thoughts, and I don't know what to do. And I'm praying. I'm reading my Bible. I've gone to see a counselor. They keep getting worse and worse, and I'm really afraid I'm going to hurt myself. And I talked to. The only person I told is my wife and she said, I have to come talk to you. I'm thinking, upstairs, that's a really good choice, you know. Like, Lord, what's I don't know what to say here. I'm immediately out of my depth. I'm not a counselor, I'm not a licensed therapist. There's been a few times people have shown up at my door suicidal, and it always like it's life or death, you know, and I'm always thinking, what do I say? What do I not say? This is a big deal. I ask him a few questions and he he describes a bunch of stuff and um I'm like, Lord, I don't know. Like, this guy seems to have it all together. He's got the American Dream Aced. He's got an incredible house, an incredible, I trade vehicles with him. He's got a great car. He's got a, a fantastic bride. You know, there's marrying up, and then there's this magic trick that he pulled off, and I still don't know why she married him. You know, she's amazing, and he's not so amazing. And I like him. He's our friend. But, like, I'm, you know, you have friends like that, you're like, how did that work out? You know? <laughs> And he's got everything the American wants minus the obligatory golden retriever and SUV. <laughs> he's aced the American dream, and yet he's showing up at my house suicidal, and he's not happy, he's not content, and, um, and he loves the Lord. He's a great disciple of Christ, great Christian. And I am asking some questions thinking, God, I don't know what to do here. You know, I'm just trying to watch my son play monster trucks, and now I've got someone who's like considering taking their life. And he says, he starts to talk about his job, and he, he says, you know, I grew up, and my dream was to do this, and I spent my entire life working towards this dream, and I got within sniffing distance of it, and it got taken away from me, and now my job is this over here, and I just, I hate my job. I go to, I spend, you know, 70 hours of work, uh, a week at work, and I, I hate driving to work, I hate being at work, I hate coming home from work, and I thought, bingo. Now, time out. First of all, mental health and emotional health and suicidal thoughts and depression, all this stuff is very, very serious. And there's a lot of different routes that can um, contribute, often at times compoundingly, to the fruit of either depression or anxiety or suicidal thoughts and all this stuff. And so it's not very, a very simple, quick fix and just changing your job is not going to fix that, right? Um, but I know my friend very well. I know his medical history. I know like major surgeries he's had. I know his family history. I know his mother and his father and how he was raised. I know his faith background. I know a lot about um, my good friend. And I know enough about him to know that at least, at the very least, his job was a trigger. At the very most, it was a major factor into his emotional and mental well being. And so I began, I asked him a question. I said, buddy, has God called you to be at that job, or are you just there because of the paycheck? And he says, no one's ever asked me that question. I've never thought about that. I just thought I should take the job, because it paid well, and I could do it. And I said, has, but has God called you to do that thing? And He's like, I don't know. I, I don't, I don't, I'm not really sure. And We prayed, and I... I you know, um, recommended him to a counselor, and, and uh, when I called him to ask him if I could share the story, um, he confirmed, he said, he's like, I'm, I'm thinking about changing jobs, and just after talking to you, going to see this counselor, and just even thinking about a different career, my anxiety and depression has gone from a nine to a four, and I was like, so would you say that this job that you're in was, was contributing to these suicidal thoughts? He goes, absolutely. My friend isn't alone. Have you considered the state of our American workforce? It's pretty dire. Consider the way we work. Just the way that we do our jobs, not even the job themselves, but the way we do it. Healthy work boundaries seem to rarely exist. You might have a greater chance seeing a unicorn than finding someone who knows when to quit at the end of the day. Healthy work boundaries and focus don't happen automatically or by accident. And the system of having a healthy boundary with the way you work is tipped in, your fa- in the favor of you being a machine, not a human being. Consider this, as a society, we have like set up laws for how much you should work. But if you go past those laws, you're rewarded. And it's called overtime, time and a half promotions. The system in America is rigged towards if you work like a machine and work like a slave, you will actually make more money and advance more in your career. That's how sick it is. If you're burning the candle at both ends, bringing work home with you at night or checking work emails while you're laying in bed, you're celebrated as a leader and someone who hustles. You'll get promoted. You'll make more money. And if you do that for your entire working life, you'll have all the financial success and freedom that you've dreamed of. But your kids and your family and your friends will hate you. You'll be a jerk. You'll be a shell of a human being. And all that money you made will pay for their counseling. We call that the American dream, but it sounds a lot more like a nightmare. If an employee does set and maintain a healthy uh, boundary with work, they quickly begin to suffer the fear of falling behind and not advancing in their career, because everyone else is racing forward. The very healthy boundary that was put in place to protect their health and well-being immediately turns on them to injure and inflict them emotionally. That's how sick work culture in America is today. The employee who is glued to their smartphone, while unconsciously having dinner with loved ones, is hard-working, and the other is a slacker who's afraid to hustle. We celebrate the exhausted hustler while we encourage the other to update their resume. I hope they can remember their LinkedIn password. They will need this website soon to find a new job. Excluding the sloth and that one guy you know who plays video games in his mom's basement, the way we work has become unbearable and sustainable. Consider your life and the way you work. Is it unbearable? Is it unsustainable? Furthermore, consider the way, uh, not just the way we work, but the work that we give our lives to. More than half of America hates their J-O-B. Recently, um, the conference board reported that 53%, more than half of Americans are unhappy with their job. Let that sink in. Half of America hates the thing that they give their best lifetime and energy to. When you go to work tomorrow morning, on Monday morning, and you make your morning commute, look at everyone around you. Half of them are dying inside while they drive 70 miles, 70 miles an hour past you while texting or putting on their makeup. Just think of that. Half of the people who are speeding past you are dying inside as they go to a place that literally sucks the life out of them. Another agency reported that only 20% of the American workforce is passionate about their job. So half, 53%, hate their job. 30% are apparently putting up with it. But only 20% love it. Now, let's put this in perspective. Fill your living room with 10 of your closest friends. Two of them love the thing they give their life to. Now, if that doesn't alarm you, let's say you have cancer. Let's say you have brain cancer, and you need... Hire a brain surgeon and pay him a lot or her a lot of money to keep you alive, and you fill a uh, uh, a medical screening room with ten brain surgeons. Statistically, two of them want to cut you open. Eight of them are there just because of the paycheck. If you had the ability, if you have brain cancer and you need life-saving surgery, and you have the ability to see which are in the eighty percent and which are in the twenty percent, are you hiring? One of the eight? Not a chance. Why? Because your life depends on them living their life to the fullest and loving it. And I don't know about you, if I've got a doctor who's going to uh, put me under anesthesia and cut me open, I don't want the one who could possibly be daydreaming about a different job. Only 20% of working Americans are passionate about the work they give their lives to. Unless you're Mark Twain that stat should alarm you. You'll have to Google the the famous Mark Twain quote on statistics to get that joke. Even if you are Twainian in your worldview of statistics, you either know someone or have seen someone or have heard of someone, or you are the someone who daily experiences the life-sucking power of a job that literally sucks. Have you seen the office, parks and recreation, office space? There's a reason why those dramatizations are funny. It's because they're true. Most people associate life-sucking pain with work, and comedy is one way we cope with it. Think of all of the, 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 the language and the cute sayings we have in our popular culture. Sunday is fun day. The worst day is Monday. Wednesday is hump day. Atheists who don't pray, thank God it's Friday. It's always five o'clock somewhere. The worst part of the weekend is when it's over but God designed you for more than that. You were meant for life. You are not a machine. The way we work and the work we work is only half of the issue. The way we rest and the way we recover and the way we find Sabbath and delight is also an issue. We regularly choose relief over restoration. I've said this a lot. Netflix and a bottle of wine is relief, but it's not restoration. I love ESPN and Boom Chicka Pop. But kettle corn and and the daily update of what happened in the sports world with Dr. Pepper is a relief. It's a pressure release valve. It's letting go of a bunch of stress, but it is not filling me with life. That's not to say you shouldn't have Netflix or you shouldn't eat kettle corn. I have both and enjoy both, but it is not restoration for your soul. It is just a break. It's a relief, and sometimes it's a distraction. Netflix is a billion-dollar company because... We overindulge and endure work until it's unbearable. And then we swing for escape at the end of the day or the end of the week so we can muster up enough strength to go another round because there are bills to pay. We endure work and escape work. We endure work and we escape work. And we do that over and over and over, repeat, repeat, and repeat. Even talking to church leaders about Sabbath is difficult. In fact, the people who, who, um, who have the greatest obstacle to understand what what true Sabbath, Holy Sabbath is, are are pastors and and workers in the the ministry. I spend most of my time talking to them, trying to um, untangle them from all of the religious and legalistic ideas that they have associated with keeping the fourth commandment. Eugene Peterson, who translated the Message Bible, said, I'll put this up here, I want to get it right, I'm going to quote him. Sabbath without silence, solitude, beauty, pleasure, delight, and feasting is a... Bastard Sabbath," says the guy who translated the Bible. If you, uh, he, he talks furthermore on the difference between a day off and a Sabbath. They're not the same thing. There's a day off. If you have Sabbath, but you don't have time where you uh, uh, pull away from the world and work, I don't check email or social media on my Sabbath. Uh, uh, if, you, if you have a Sabbath, and there's no time of solitude and reflection if there's no Psalms 46.10, cease striving and knowing that God is God. If there's no engagement with beauty, if you don't experience pleasure or delight. I mean, have you ever associated the word pleasure and delight with Sabbath? Most church people I know associate boredom <laughs> with Sabbath. But as the scriptures teach, as we'll uh, unpack for five weeks, is that the Sabbath is a day of delight. It's a day of play. It's a day of of true restoration. It should be, remember how when you were a kid and um, and Christmas Day came? That should be the Sabbath every seven days. The delight you felt as a child when Christmas Day came should be the delight you feel when the Sabbath arrives. The Jews taught that the Sabbath was a bride and a queen, There are accounts of Jewish boys leaving leaving school on Friday, yelling like little schoolgirls, And people wonder, why are these Jewish boys screaming like little girls? And it's because the Sabbath has come, because they've learned the delight in the Sabbath. Dan Allender says it best. Sabbath is not about taking um, time off or a break in routine. It is not a mini vacation to give us respite so we are better prepared to go back to work. The Sabbath is far more than a diversion. It is meant to be an encounter with God's delight. This weekend, have you been Sabbathing? Did you Sabbath yesterday, or is today your Sabbath, or are you in the middle of your Sabbath, or whatever? Sabbath is different than a day off. Sabbath is different than a day to run errands. It's very different. Keeping the Sabbath holy is right up there with don't murder, don't steal, don't cheat on your spouse. Most people I know don't brag about how many people they've murdered. I've not met anybody who brags about something they stole. I've never met the person who's bragged about the affair they've had. I've had many men show up on my front door weeping and crying because they've committed an affair. Not one of them has bragged about it. But yesterday, I met a guy, a stranger. We were in Lano, Texas having breakfast. We had a 24-hour break. And uh, a guy comes up to me, and I, he said to me, how are you doing? I said, I'm great. I said, how are you? And he said, oh, great, I'm busy. And I said, well, it's better than being bored. He goes, damn straight. <laughs> I'm like, what is wrong with our culture? that when i say how are you doing and you said i'm good i'm busy we brag and boast about how busy we are and we would rather be busy than being bored when we spend our lives doing that we end up fried overwhelmed and exhausted and sometimes you show up at your friend's house at 3:01 wondering what's the meaning to your life have you ever deeply considered time How we've, even as Americans, how we view time is so messed up. The Bible teaches that time can be holy. We spend 100% of our time either working or resting. You spend a third of your life sleeping. You spend a third of your life at a paid uh, job, usually, uh, typically. And you spend the other third of your life either doing unpaid work, like laundry or changing the oil in your car or, or parenting or going to get groceries. That's work. You ever been to H-E-B with a small kid? That's work. You don't get paid for it. You get stares. You get murmurs. But you don't get paid for that, but it's work, right? We spend the other third of our life either working without a paycheck or resting, playing, having delight. We say things like, time is money. What an American idea. Time is money? Really? Really? We say things like, I need more time, as if God hasn't provided you with everything you need to get done for the day which you needed to do. We say things like, let's make time, as if you have the power to create a 25th hour. Never met anyone who's been able to live a 25th hour day. We say things like, let's steal time, as if we could add more to the days God's marked for us. We Say things like, let's spend time or let's use time as if it were a consumeristic good or commodity. We even say things like, and I'm fond of saying this, let's recycle the time as if there's a way to reuse it. And we say things like, let's redeem the time as if there's something wrong with it and it needs to be saved. Just look at the way we talk about time. As we'll dig into in Genesis uh, 2 God created everything, and it was good. He created man and woman; it was very good. And then it says, "On the seventh day, he finished his work, and he called the Sabbath day holy. The first thing called holy in a perfect creation was this time period called Sabbath. God views time as holy and transcendent. We call it money." We think of time even as a machine, and this has resulted in us being and functioning like slaves and machine. In the Industrial Revolution, the clock became the most transformative tool that turned society away from an agrarian worldview that lived underneath time and within the seasons, and more towards a uh, production worldview. And because of the, the invention of the clock, this thing on my wrist, the tables have, fl- have flipped. Lewis Mumford said, the clock, not the steam engine, is the key machine of the modern industrial age. Juliet Shore said, the clock replaced the sun as the regulator of working hours. But unlike the sun, the clocks would be under the control of the employer. My friends, you are not a machine And even how we view time and how we invent things to control time and control people who work for us underneath the time should be a clue that we've gotten out of alignment with how God sees things. Before the clock, we lived in harmony with God's creation, and we functioned like human beings. But with the clock, electricity, and the invention of the light bulb and artificial lighting, we can now work past our God-given limits with the flip of a switch. We steal time in the morning and at night when the sun is down. I love technology, and I'm grateful for all these inventions, but it should be noted that all technology in in any form has the ability to no longer serve us well when not employed with wisdom. You are not a machine. Lastly, let's look at Jesus' gospel. Jesus has work. In John 10, it's an incredible uh, coffee cup verse for good reason. Um, let's throw it up here. Um, Jesus describes the job description of the enemy and then he will talk about the work that he came to do. and this is incredible. Jesus says, "The thief comes only to do three things. These are the three things in the enemy's job description Still." kill, and destroy. It would sober you up if you even thought for 60 seconds that you have an enemy who spends all of his time and effort thinking, how can he steal from you? How can he kill you? And how can he destroy your life? If you're not a person of prayer and you meditate on that, you should become a person of prayer because you have an enemy for your soul. The good news is that Jesus, who's greater than him, says that he came to give Life, and life abundantly. Now, the American language is kind of, like we have one word for life, it's life. all right. In the Greek, they had three words for life. The first word for life, and two of these should be familiar to you, the first word for life is uh, bios. Anything that has cells and multiplies has life, or biology, right? That tree in your front yard has life, but it's a biological life, right? But there's a deeper level of life. There's the Greek word psyche. Anything that has a mind and can think has life or psychology. So it's different. You, know, you have life, but it's different than the life that your tree has. The tree doesn't have a mind of its own. You do. And that's, that's the, the, the distinction between those two forms of life. But when Jesus says, I've come to give life and life more abundantly, he doesn't use the Greek word bios. He doesn't use the Greek word psyche. He uses a different word, and it's the word zoe, Anyone know a girl named Zoe? Two of you. All right. Well, now you're gonna have a great story to tell her because you're gonna be able to tell her what her name means. Um, Zoe is is having eternal life because you have been connected to and quickened by the Father. That's what Zoe means. It's different. It's different than um, a biological life. It's different than even life of an animal. But the life that Jesus came to give us is a deeper life. Best definition I've come across is that, li- that Zoe life is real, genuine, a life active and vigorous, a life devoted to God, a life that is blessed in Christ. Who wouldn't want that? Now, here's the thing with Zoe. You can have all the trinkets, toys, and thingamabobs the American uh, culture says you should have. And you can have all of that stuff, and you could, have your dr- you could even have your dream job. And you could have the best vacations that would make anyone on Instagram drool. But if you don't have Zoe, if you don't have life from the Father, paid for through Jesus, poured out on you by the Holy Spirit, then none of that stuff is worth anything. What I know to be true is that you can have Zoe abundantly. And whether you have the job or the vacations, the lifestyle or not, you will have life. And often, when you have Zoe as a result of being connected with the Father, when it comes to work, you just end up doing whatever you see God doing. And you find an incredible, uh, incredible life that's fulfilled just because you're doing what God's desire is for, for your life. Not because you've got this massive career plan, you had a great degree. It's just because of Zoe, you're connected to the Father. And like Jesus, you only do whatever you see the Father doing. It's amazing. This is the, the conversation Jesus has with Nicodemus in John 3, if you know that, that story. Nicodemus comes to Jesus and says, how do we see the kingdom of God? What must I do? How must I perform to see the kingdom of God? And Jesus says, unless you're born from above, unless you're born again. In other words, unless you have zoe poured out on you abundantly as a gracious gift, you can't see the kingdom of God. The rest of that story is the famous, most, probably the most famous verse in the Bible, John three sixteen. For God so loved the world, that he gave his one and only son, that whoever would believe in him would have life or his way. A couple weeks ago, I visited um, one of our sister churches in Dallas. They um, bought an old facility in downtown Dallas and converted it to their worship space, and it's amazing. And they said, hey, we'd love for you to come see it. We'll, we'll, we'll buy your plane ticket. Do you want to come see it? I'm like, sure, I'm not an idiot. <laughs> I'll, I'll get on a plane that I'm not paying for, and so I show up there, and they wanted—they're in a, an urban environment. and They wanted to kind of ask about, hey, you're in an urban environment, like how can our church is changing? What have you learned? And so they, they flew me up there just to hang out with them. We went to lunch, and we got um, to the office after lunch, and the UPS guy had come, and there's these boxes there, and one of the pastors there was really excited. And I'm in our post barbecue coma. I'm thinking, why are you excited about these boxes? And he gets a knife and he cuts open this box and he pulls out this cup, and he says, Drew, we ordered a thousand of these cups to give away as gifts on our grand opening, and we want you to have the first one, and they thought they were all really cool, you know, and I was like, no, thank you. I don't need another giveaway cup, you know, my cupboard is full with cups I don't use, and And I tried to give it back graciously, and like, no, 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 Um, we want you to have this cup, and I don't, it's not my logo, I mean, if it had my logo, maybe, but like this is, I'm not even in Dallas, you know, besides the Cowboys, I really don't like Dallas, and, you know, and and so, um, they're like, no, you have to take, so I take the cup, and then we spend the rest of the day there in meetings, and where we were meeting, I had it on the table, and at the end, it was time to go to the airport, and I packed up my bags, and I left the cup there, and I thought, I'm just going to leave the cup. On the table, because I don't need another silly cup, right? Some of you are thinking of that with the devotional guide. I'm just going to leave the guide on the chair. <laughs> That's called drive-by guilting in ministry, by the way. So, um, <laughs> and I felt the Lord say, "Drew, take the cup." I'm like, "I don't want the cup. I took it. I put it in my backpack." And I get on the airplane, and I'm flying. We're flying back home, and we're about to get in San Antonio, and I just. I have this really, I'm in the, an airplane, and all of a sudden I feel this hard to describe, it just, I felt God's presence in the airplane. Just like, at the risk of sounding like a charismaniac, just, I just felt God's presence in the airplane. And my heart realized, and I'm like, oh gosh, like, I hate flying in airplanes, but I just really feel at peace right now while I'm in the middle of these two people. And I feel the Lord saying, he just keeps bringing this cup to my memory, and I'm like, I, "Lord, are you talking? Are you trying to say something to me through this cup?" And I, I hear a yes. I'm like, "Oh, I don't want this cup. This is a dumb cup. I don't even like the colors or the design. You know, like, like why? I don't need this cup. But God, you told me that I got, I'm here with this cup, and I have this thought, like maybe I should text the guy who gave this to me and ask. And I'll just put myself out and say, hey." What's God saying through the cup? You know, just like, I'm not that crazy of a Christian, but I'm like, I'm, I'm like 50%, like I think God's trying to speak to me through this cup, but I'm not sure, you know. No, this is, this is really dumb. I'm not going to text this guy that I've never texted before um, about God speaking to me through a cup. Like, this is dumb. We land, I get cell phone Reception and have a missed call, and it's from this guy who's never called me ever, never talked to this guy on the phone. And uh, he, he uh, just left this beautiful blessing of a voicemail, and I thought, okay, Lord, I, I get it. I'm, I'm going to text this guy. So I text him, and I said, "Hey, buddy, um, I really don't want this cup. You know <laughs> You know that, I know that, we know that. But I feel like God is saying something to me through this cup. What's, what's the cup for? And he replied, and he, all he said was, the cup is there for overflowing. Not half full, not half empty. God wants your cup to overflow. And I immediately thought of Psalms 23 on the airplane as I'm crying. Let's read it together. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want In the presence of my enemies, you anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I'm sitting there on that plane. This verse comes to my mind, and I know in verse 5 it says, my cup overflows, and I'm sitting there crying like a baby, like, okay, Lord, I don't even want this stupid cup. But I hear you. God's desire is that your cup would overflow with the Zoe life of the kingdom. It won't come by having the right job. It won't come by having the right vacation. It only comes by a gracious act of Jesus pouring out his Holy Spirit upon you. And when you when you experience that, everything else tends to fall into place and you, you, you start leading, uh, you start being led by God into your work and your rest. But the, the, the ground zero is having Zoe abundantly, overflowing, not just a little bit. My friend showed up at my house that day. One of the reasons why he had the thought of taking his life is because he wasn't experiencing the overflowing abundance of life, Zoe, inside of him. And he's looking for it in all of the wrong places. A lot of us just settle. We take our cup to the Lord, and even if we are taking it to the Lord, and we just settle for a little bit. And some of you, your cup is like this right now. You just got a little bit. You're just trying to make it through another day, looking forward to the next break maybe you're, you're looking at your family for fulfillment, or you're looking for your spouse, your children, or if you just had the right job, if you had the right schedule, then you'd be fulfilled, and, and, and no matter what, you keep trying to, you know, football's on today, I love football, but, you know, this is what football does, just a little bit, not much, you know, Dak Prescott will throw an interception today, and they'll lose, you know, and, You know, just just a little bit at a time. And we settle. This is the life we settle for all the time. And we think this is what God wants for us. But this is not the life that God wants for us. He said he came to give you Zoe, but give it abundantly. And when you look to Jesus, this is what he does. It's just like abundantly overflowing. Look at that. And when you place your cup underneath God, you get, oh, it's not overflowing. So you get more of it. And what happens? This is so amazing. Amazing. Is it overflows and it gets everywhere else? It gets on people in the front row. It gets on the pastors pouring it. What if you lived your life in overflowing? How would other people think of the your neighbor? How would your neighbor be different if this was your life abundantly? Abundantly, not a little bit, abundantly. Come on, this is what God has for you, everything. Everything. You'll never forget this moment. He prepares a table in the presence of your enemies. He anoints your head with oil. He fills your cup with overflowing. This is the cup that God wants for you. Life overflowing. It won't come by having the right job. It won't come by having a great vacation budget. It comes when you respond to Jesus calling your name. And when he pours his Holy Spirit on top of you and quickens your heart, this is life overflowing, this is it. And then everything else, it, those are everything, your job, your work, what you give your life to, retirement, uh, Sabbath, all of that stuff, is just a result of having a life that is overflowing with God. I pray that this fall, from now until Thanksgiving, that you will seek the Lord for Zoe. Join us in our devotions and our sermons. That's what he wants for you. Father, we thank you that you have created us not to be slaves, not to be robots, not to be machinery on this earth, but you have first created us to enjoy the delight of your presence we remember that the first day of humanity was the Sabbath. We have our beginnings in holy pleasure and delight. That we began the work you called us to from a place of deep rest and fellowship and connection with you. God, and we remember how that connection to the Zoe life was broken at the fall. And for the rest of all of human history, men and women have been trying to achieve and do something special that would bring significance to try to restore the broken Zoe. Zoe. but it never works. Jesus, we remember your life on the cross as you exchanged your eternal life, your Zoe, for our death. The work you came to this earth to do. You stretched your arms out on the hard wood of the cross and you said, "It is finished." The work of offering abundant life to anybody who would come within your saving embrace it's finished we don't have to add to it no man or woman no scheme from hell can take away from it it's finished Lord as we come to this table that you have prepared in the presence of our sin and in the presence of our enemies we come longing for you to anoint our head with oil and to fill our cup with an overflowing life. We thank you, God, for your table of grace. We thank you for the provision of your table, the life of Christ that we desperately need. Lord, as we come to worship you today, I pray you would quicken dead hearts and lives For those who are stuck, those who are just stuck in gear living as a machine, Lord, I pray today you would pour out your spirit in a fresh way on their life, their family, their marriage, their waking, their sleeping, everything, Lord.